I'm the lead pastor of, uh, of this church, and really great that you could join us. I'm going to begin with a bit of a confession. And for those who have known me for a while, this is going to be pretty shocking. So here goes. I don't love cycling like I used to. I haven't even ridden much in the last month. Like I used to ride up to 200 kilometers a week. Three or four mornings a week. Wake up at 5 a.m., even in winter, cold and dark. Now I barely ride like once a week and no more than about 30 k's. So what happened? Well, I'd like to say it was COVID. But the reality is, if I'm honest, even before COVID hit, I just, things just slowly changed. Like 200 k's a week goal, it turned into 150, then 120, then 100, then 80. Those early morning group rides, now not three or four times a week, just maybe once on a Saturday is enough. And then COVID hit, of course, and then those Saturday rides had to stop. And then over the last two and a half years since COVID, it's just slowly drifted. And now I cannot imagine waking up at 5 a.m., three degree mornings, in the dark to put on Lycra to ride with other men in Lycra. Like, just can't imagine doing that anymore. So what happened? Well, some people stop cycling because they get injured, they have a crash. Not me. I stopped doing it as much because I slowly drifted, just slowly drifted away. Now, the book of Hebrews, if you were here last week, you'll remember that's also what can happen when it comes to following Jesus, the slow drift away from Jesus. And I wonder again if this is you. Now, last week we looked at how the first four verses of uh, chapter one, how we can stop the drift or we need to stop the drift because God has spoken and we talked about how important that is. And we listen to what he said, but we listen by looking at Jesus, his final and most definitive word. Now this week, we're also going to have a think about how we can stop drifting, but it's by paying greater attention to a great salvation, by paying greater attention to a great salvation. So wherever you're at, especially if you feel the drift, if you have drifted or you haven't, it'll probably happen at some point. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we pray that you would help us today pay greater attention to these very important words. Help us to see the great salvation you bought for us through Jesus. And we pray that wherever we are, especially if we're drifting or in danger of drifting, that you might bring us back through Jesus and through the power of your word today. Amen. All right, let's go. So as we start in chapter 1, verse 5, where we picked, uh, we're picking up where we left off, it's really strange. And if you looked at it during our community groups this week, you'll know that the writer all of a sudden spends a whole lot of time, doesn't he, talking first about angels. Now, we'll see why that is the case in a moment. But let me just talk a little bit about angels, because you need to know that Christians have always believed in the existence of angels, okay? That is non-human, supernatural beings created by God who are used by God at many times in His work on earth, and it's throughout the Bible. Now, some people think well, Christians believe in angels. That's like fairy tale stuff. That's not scientific. How can you believe in that? Now, I'm here not to argue the existence of angels, but I wanted to do say this, is that most religions and spiritualities, you'll know, have a belief of the existence of demons and evil spirits, right? 
Now, even if they don't believe in angels, a lot of spiritualities, almost all of them, have a belief in evil powers, demons, uh, evil spirits. And even a lot of maybe secular Australians are willing to think, yeah, maybe there are evil spirits. Well, here's the thing, right? Just as in the Bible's view, just as there are evil spirits and demons that serve Satan, so there are also good spiritual beings who serve God. All right? The Bible speaks of both evil and good and evil servants and good servants. That's what angels are, good servants. So what do angels do in the Bible? A quick look, you'll see that uh, they do lots of stuff, and there's some references. Feel free to take a photo of that slide. You ask me for it later if you want. But um, primarily, they're going to be messengers. In fact, the word angel just means messenger. It's not a special word, like in the English, angel. Um, in, in the languages that the Bible's written, to, written in, the word angel is the word messenger. Um, so they're messengers for God. They also give direct help for God's people. Um, they help Jesus in Luke 22. They help the apostles in Acts 5. They carry out God's judgments at times. Uh, they're soldiers and fight uh, war against Satan's evil forces. And in particular, they're present at the great turning points in salvation history. So the giving of the law at uh, Mount Sinai with Moses, at the birth of Jesus, you'll know, the angels... And then they will also be present at the second coming. Okay, so that's angels in the Bible. Just a quick sketch. They're super important in the Bible. All right, if you take out all the belief and references to angels in the Bible, it'll leave a lot of holes. But here's the thing, and this is what we actually ended with last week. Remember the end of chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. It says, After he, that's Jesus, had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And look at this verse. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. What's it saying? Jesus is much greater than the angels, as impressive as they are. Right? And in fact, he's greater than anyone or anything else in the Bible other than God himself. And that's really a big message uh, in the book of Hebrews. He's going to be greater than Moses. He's going to be greater than the prophets. He's going to be greater than the priests, right? Jesus is greater, which means that we need to look at angels and we need to put them in their place. See, while they're impressive, while they're important, while they're all over the Bible, they are but messengers. They are but servants. And their name or their title, angel, messenger, suggests that. Whereas Jesus, look at the name he's been given, as we saw last week, his name, his title is far superior because he is son. And that's what we're going to turn to now. So in verses 5 to 13, there are seven quotations from the Old Testament. One after another, like bam, 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 bam. It's a little bit like a rap battle, okay? In a rap battle, if you're going to win a rap battle, your goal is to overwhelm the opponent with your lyrical genius. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's trying to overwhelm you with Old Testament quotations. Now, each one of these deserves careful study. I mean, you could actually look up each one and the context where it's quoted. Uh, if, that's a worthy exercise to do, and, and it'll tell you what passage it comes from if you look at the little footnotes in your Bibles. Um, but if you do that, just please note, the quotations come from the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was the version that they commonly use in Jesus' day. So we'll differ slightly at points to the Old Testament that we've got, which is the English version but it's English translated from Hebrew, okay? So just note there'll be some little differences. Not major, some. 
Unfortunately, we don't have time to do that now because I want to keep moving through this passage. So let me give you a helpful summary of these quotations. Now, you can see that these seven quotations will come in three pairs. And there's one final quote at the end to cap off. Yeah, you see the pairs? So the first column, pair one, pair two, pair three. They go in pairs. And then the final one caps it off. So let's quickly have a look at the first pair. That's going to be a quotation from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, as well as 2 Samuel 7, 14. And the big message there, as you can see, Jesus is greater because Jesus is the unique Son of God. So what we've got here are two quotations about how important King David and his line of kings are, and it's applied to Jesus because Jesus is in the line of David. He's a great, 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 grandson of David, all right? So verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say? That's a rhetorical question. Answer is obvious. He never said this to any of the angels. But he said this to Jesus. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Psalm 2. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. 2 Samuel 7. Okay. Here that um, title, Son of God, is not so much about Jesus being the second person of the Trinity. We know God is Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's not so much about Jesus being God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, although that's true. But this is particularly, the Son of God is a special title that's given to all of God's appointed Messiah kings in the line of David. All right, David was the first Son of God, and every king following him was Son of God. That's what it means, Messiah. And so that's why there actually is a point at which Jesus was appointed Son of God. Right? Even though he was always God the Son, second person of the Trinity, there was a point in time where he was declared to be Son of God in this sense, Messiah, King. That happened first at his baptism. You remember God's voice from heaven announced it, this is my son. And then in his death and resurrection and going up to heaven, that is confirmed and he is crowned to be indeed the Son of God, the Messiah King. All right, that skipped over your head. Don't worry too much about it. What is it saying? Jesus is greater than the angels because God calls him son and he calls no angel that. First pair. Second pair, Deuteronomy and Psalm 104. And the point there is that Jesus is greater because why? He's worshipped and served by the angels. Like that obvious, right? If the angels worship and serve him, he's got to be greater than them. So verse 6, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, however, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. Okay, you see a contrast between angels worshiping Jesus, but angels themselves just being servants. Now, the third pair, we've got really long quotes, so we won't read it, but it's from Psalm 45 and Psalm 102. But the point there is that Jesus is greater because he, unlike the angels, he's eternal. And he is the eternal ruler as well as he is God. He is creator. Right? One of the quotes actually calls him God. Now, I'm not going to go through that again because actually we dealt with a lot of those things last week when we looked at Jesus being all those things. So if you missed last week's sermon, hop online and have a, have a listen. But the point is, Jesus is greater because he alone is eternal ruler, creator. He is God. And then that last quotation, the seventh one, caps it off with actually, just for, for, for your sake, you might want to know for this, for next time we have Bible trivia at Weekend Away, this is the most quoted chapter of the Bible in the New Testament from the Old Testament. All right? Most quoted is Psalm 110 
which says, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Right? He's talking about Jesus on his divine throne as the Messiah, Son of God, ruling, exalted, reigning. That's Jesus. Angels, on the other hand, verse 14. This is a good summary, verse 14, of what he says about angels. Verse 14, are not all angels. What are they? Well, they're ministering or serving spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. All right, you get a pretty clear picture, right? Jesus is greater than angels. Now, I don't know if you've uh, seen in, on Instagram, there's actually a hashtag and it's called Preachers in Sneakers. Who's ever seen Preachers in Sneakers on Instagram? Some of you have, some of you who like sneakers. Um, essentially, you've got celebrity preachers and you see how much their sneakers are worth. So they take a photo of a celebrity preacher like Carl Lentz, formerly Hillsong, New York, and then they find the sneaker that he wore in that picture and it's $792 on discount. Or how about Pastor Mike Todd? His sneakers, Yeezys, are worth $1,211. Or Stephen Furtick, this is not his sneakers, but his jacket, how much is that worth? $690. They're all celebrity pastors, obviously really well off, flashing their sneakers and their clothes. Now, I don't know about you, but this is pretty uncomfortable, right? There's something really wrong about pastors and preachers being celebrities in the first place, and then also getting pretty rich off it. Now, why I mention that isn't to just have a go at them, but here's the thing. We, I take it none of us are in danger, and not at our church, of over-exalting angelic messengers of God, right? I haven't checked, but last I checked, none of you have been worshiping angels, have you? No? Okay. But you know what? We can be in danger of what? Celebritizing human messengers, can't we? Now, you might look at them and go, okay, those health and wealth preachers, obviously. We don't. You know, in our circles, we have our own stable of evangelical pastors and preachers that we celebrate and idolize. They might not have gotten rich like Carl Lentz, but we still idolize them and celebrate them. And, or if you don't, it can be the other way, a little bit more subtle, like, I grew up at a church, like in our church, where it's not just one preacher every week. We often would get different uh, pastors from our church preaching at different times, and sometimes we also get some guest preachers. And growing up at that church, let me tell you honestly, I would switch on when I knew some people were preaching, but when I heard that someone else was preaching, oh, that old boring guy, I'd automatically switch off. And I wonder if you do that as well. You see, we can over-exalt, over-emphasize, or even under-appreciate human messengers. And that is dangerous, isn't it? Especially when we celebritize pastors, preachers. It's dangerous because when these guys fall, and I won't mention which one, but at least one of them did, it's terribly damaging. But it's even more dangerous because when we elevate any human messenger or divine messenger like angels, what you're going to do is you're going to make Jesus less, yeah? Recently, uh, Nicky Gumbel retired, and uh, he's the guy who founded the Alpha Course. He, leads, he was leading the biggest Anglican church in the UK, a church called HTB. 
He's a really great guy, and those of us who've been watching Alpha, and he's been, he's been wonderful. What I really was really impressed with was at his retirement sermon. So this guy who leads this massive worldwide ministry with millions of people, literally, um, have benefited from, leads the biggest church, Anglican church in the UK. And at his retirement sermon, he said this. He says, Alpha doesn't belong to me. Lots of people were involved before. Lots of people will be involved afterwards. Same with HTB, his church. It's a huge privilege to drive it, but it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. It's bought by the blood of Jesus. This church was bought with his own blood. Jesus died for you. None of the previous pastors of HDB died for you. Your senior pastor is not dying for you. Jesus died for you. You see, friends, whether angelic messengers or human messengers never make us, because I'm speaking as one of them, more important than we ought to be. We're messengers. Put them, angels, put us in our place in relation to Jesus, but also, when it comes to angels, in relation to the message. As I said before, this bit on angels, 5 to 13, like verses 5 to 13, a lot of scholars have racked their brains wondering if, well, if you spend this much time talking about angels and Jesus being greater, was there like a cult of angel worship or something that he was trying to address? I mean, if not, then why all these verses on angels and Jesus being greater? And those of you who looked at it during CG, this might be a question like, yeah, I get what he's saying, but why is he even saying it? Now, the problem with this um, theory that there's some sort of cult of angel worship is actually there's not much evidence that this was such a problem elsewhere. And I want to say, actually, there's no need to have that as a theory, as a reason why. Because if you read this passage or these passages in context, you'll actually see the reason. You see, all of those verses on angels, verses 5 to 13, actually points forward to chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And that's where I want to shift to right now. See, I'm going to show you again these verses with the important bits highlighted, and hopefully you can see uh, what I'm getting at. So let me read again from verse 14 of chapter 1 into chapter 2. So after all the bits about it, Jesus being greater, all the you know, quotations, he says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. I hope you're seeing the connection now, right? Why the bits about angels? Well, because there is a logic in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. The logic is about, if this is true, then how much more true that is. It's what's called the lesser to the greater argument. You get what I'm saying? The lesser to the greater. Remember, as I said, one of the things that um, the Old Testament speaks about angels did was they were involved somehow in giving God giving the law at Mount Sinai to his people, right? The law being God's old covenant, his set of agreements, right? His, his contract, if you like, his word to his Old Testament people, Israel. Angels were involved in that. Now, what, what the Hebrews writer is saying is this. If that word, that covenant came through angels, if that was so important that if you violated it, if you disobeyed it, if you drifted from it, there'd be huge consequences then 
how much greater would the consequences be if you ignored, ignored, disobeyed, or drifted away from the new word, the new covenant, which came not through angels, but through the Lord Jesus, which we have already seen in verses 5 to 13, is much greater than the angels. You see? You see, you see the logic? Lesser to the greater. Lesser, God's word through angels. Greater, God's word through the Son. And that's why there are all those verses about the Son being greater. Which means all of those bits about the angels is pointing us to these verses in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Which is about not drifting. Which brings me to my second point. There are two reasons he gives for not drifting and one application. First reason. Don't drift... Because the one who was greater than angels has announced the greater salvation. Yeah? Lesser to greater argument. The greater one has come and he's announced a great salvation. Now, what is that salvation? Well, it's this. Jesus, the Son of God, didn't stay on his throne, but he came into this world. He lived the life that we couldn't live And then he died the death that we deserve to die in our place. And then he rose again from the dead. And he did it all so that we can be reconciled to God, brought back into relationship with God. And the one who died and rose again from the dead went back to heaven and is coming back to make all things new. Not just our souls are going to be saved, not just that we'd have our sins forgiven, But one day our bodies, the whole of creation, will be resurrected, raised again in glory. This is the great salvation. How great is this salvation? Well, literally, every single sad and broken thing will be made unsad and whole again. That is the great salvation. How do we know this is true? Well, again, remember, he says this salvation which was first announced by the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, He here is drawing on the idea of courtroom testimony, right? If it's a testimony in a courtroom, it needs to be verified by witnesses. It needs to be backed up by evidence. Well, who are the witnesses This greater salvation was confirmed by the witnesses. They are those who were with Jesus, the first eyewitnesses, his disciples, his apostles. But it's also backed up by evidence because God provided evidence that this is true, this great salvation. And he did these signs, these wonders, these miracles. And hey, you know what? They're all over the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and into the book of Acts. God continued to use these great signs, wonders, and miracles to testify to the truth of this salvation. Now, if that's not enough, you see also it's verified by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. All right? These gifts that He's talking about, this is ongoing stuff. All right? The evidence provided through signs, wonders, and miracles, particularly He's thinking about stuff that's already happened. It's documented. It's in the Gospels and Acts. Not that God doesn't do miracles anymore, but the, 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 the kind of concentration and power of miracles surrounding the, the death, the birth, death, life, and resurrection of Jesus, that was particular, particularly concentrated. And we read about it in the Gospels and Acts. 
But there's stuff that's ongoing, and, and it's the gifts of the Holy Spirit that God still gives and distributes according to His will. In other words, there's also other testimony because the Holy Spirit is still active in His people, is still active in His church. And here, here's the thing. If you are a Christian and you're active in church, well, then you're experiencing this personally and corporately all the time. You're seeing the Holy Spirit work in lots of ways in your own life and in us as, as a body of believers. Now, our own experience of God through the Holy Spirit isn't greater than what's written in the, in the New Testament, but it's another evidence testifying along with it. You see, one thing I really love about Alpha, and I'm just going to give it a plug again because it's so important, is that it actually brings all of these things together. So if you come to Alpha, and this is what Angela and others experience, you get to hear and consider the testimony of the New Testament. To check out those witnesses and what they wrote, is that true? But alongside that, and this is a really, really wonderful thing about Alpha, you get to consider and hear those things as you hear other Christians in the group. Other Christians, the Christians who brought you, the Christians who organized it, right? There's always Christians also part of this discussion. But as they share about their experience, ongoing experience of God in their life, the work of the Holy Spirit, right? You get to hear both the testimony of the New Testament and the experience of God working. And, and both of them come together to really, you know, at least humanly speaking, it's just that much more convincing that this great salvation that you're kind of encouraged to think about and consider accepting for yourself, it turns out to be true. All right? Okay. That was the great salvation. The greatest salvation is incentive not to drift. And so you cannot give it up. Right? You cannot give it up. How could you give it up? Um, I talked about drifting away from my love of cycling. I'll tell you what, I really miss some of the things. Um, I miss the greater fitness. I miss the massive quads I used to have. <laughs> I miss the slimmer body as well. But you know what? That drift is not, ultimately, it's not life-threatening. I've taken up other hobbies, sports, whatever. And it's certainly not eternally consequential. Now, that's not the case with drifting away from the great salvation. Look again at verse 2. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation of disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Maybe you're here and this is especially what God is saying to you today. It's a word of warning. This is the first of many warning passages in Hebrews. Warning us, warning God's people, Christians, from falling or drifting away. Each one of them is very sobering and we'll look at them all as we work through Hebrews. They don't pull back, okay, on the eternal consequences if you do give up, if you do fall away. Now, of course, it raises questions as, can a genuine believer really fall away? And unfortunately, I'm not going to answer right now. We're going to have to look at that as we go along. But the fact that there are eternal consequences and eternal punishments to drifting away, I mean, that very fact that even it's, it's there as a warning, that can make us uncomfortable, right? I don't know about you. I feel uncomfortable. And you can end up thinking, well, God sounds so nasty. He's like a vengeful, angry spoiled despot, a little bit of disloyalty and he can't wait to zap you if you trip up or you disobey him. Right? That can't sound like that. Well, remember, if you're tempted to think that way, remember what I said last week. 
Jesus is the exact representation of God. That is everything we know of God, we just have to look at Jesus. He perfectly reveals God. So if you're tempted to think, is God this angry, vengeful, despot? Well, ask the question, as you read about Jesus and meet Jesus in the Bible, is he? Is Jesus an angry, vengeful despot waiting to zap people? It's very hard to answer yes to that question, isn't it? Again, Jesus perfectly reveals God. So that can't be the reason. That can't be what God is like. But the other thing I think we need to remember is this. If a person falls away, what are they falling away from? Remember, they're falling away from such a great salvation. What salvation mean? Salvation means you've been saved from something, right? I'm stating the obvious, I know. But let's keep in mind, salvation is being saved from something. It's being saved from danger. It's being saved from hell. It's being saved from punishment. So falling away from that means you're choosing to go back to what you've been saved from. So it stands to reason it's going to be dire and dangerous, yeah? See, some of us like to think that life is like this, eternity is like this. You're in a room and there are two doors and you get to choose whether you go to heaven or hell. But it's not like that in the Bible. The Bible says, no, 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 this is not a room with two doors. This is a sinking ship. This is a sinking ship where if you don't get on the rescue boat, or if you get on the boat, but then change your mind and get back on the sinking ship, you're going to die. You see? Not a neutral room where you get to choose heaven or hell. You're on a conveyor belt to hell by default. And if you get the salvation, or if you don't get the salvation, or if you go back to the conveyor belt, you're going to be in danger. See, the consequences are great because the default danger is great. But God in His kindness has provided the only way that we can be saved from it. So let's not drift away from it. Let's not ignore it. So you don't want that to happen to you, do you? Which means we have to apply this word, this word not to drift. How? Well, remember these words. We must, okay, this word there must is, we got to do it. It's absolutely necessary. What do we got to do? Pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. What does paying the most careful attention mean? Well, the opposite is in that second highlighted bit. The opposite of paying the most careful attention is to ignore it. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? The word ignore there means to neglect. Or even just to gloss over, to not treat as important. How many of you hands up have been to an escape room? Okay, I haven't. But if you want to get out of an escape room within the time limit, what do you got to do? You get into that room, you have to pay careful attention, don't you? To everything. And if you ignore or gloss over details, that's going to cost you. Yeah? That's the whole idea of an escape room. Well, it's a little bit like that. If you want to stop the drift, if you don't want right, to, to end up where this warning is telling us not to end up, then this is the solution. 
this message, this good news, this gospel, this great salvation, which is about Jesus, you've got to pay most careful attention to it. And you've got to keep doing so. That's the only way you stop the drift. And as I said, it's not going to be a sudden plunge, generally, into false teaching. It's not going to be sudden abandoning of truth when you wake up the next morning. It's always, almost always going to happen slowly. Right? That shift from I'm paying close attention to then neglecting, to then glossing over. That's slow as well. And I want to end by just highlighting five suggestions of what our particular dangers are. That is, if, we, if you see these, and they're not, by the way, an exhaustive list. There's going to be more, but they're just ones that I, I came up with this week. If you see these, it may be an indication that you're not paying close attention and that you've started to drift and neglect. The first is this. When you think, I've heard it all before. Is that commonly what happens when you come to a Bible talk or a Bible study or even when you open the Bible yourself? Ah, I've heard it all before. I want to say that's a dangerous attitude to have. Because remember, it says we must pay most careful attention to what we have heard. You know, the Christian life is predominantly not about learning new things all the time, but about those same old things being drummed in again and again and again. There are very simple truths about being a Christian that if we actually lived out consistently these simple truths, we'd be very, very different. So the problem isn't that we don't have enough new things. The problem is that we start ignoring the old things because we've heard it all before. Um, those of us who went to base camp yesterday, a bunch of the men went there. It was so great. You know what? I don't think I heard one thing said from the pulpit that I hadn't heard before. But I loved it. Because I need to be paying great attention to the things I've heard before. And those men with me, you'll agree, right? There wasn't heaps that was new. But it was so important to be paying close attention to the things that we already know. So if you often have this attitude during church, Sermon starts, Bible reading happens. Oh, I've heard it all before. You can just switch off. Be careful. Be careful. Secondly, when you don't value consistency, all right, these things that we pay close attention to have to be chewed over again and, and routines, therefore, and disciplines, daily time with God, weekly gatherings, like losing those things are sure ways of drifting. My danger, by the way, is the third one. It's not consistency I have a problem with. I'm pretty, you know, I'm, I'm that kind of guy, right? Some of you will have difficulty with two, but mine is three, actually. Slowing down to digest. Like, right, I, I, I do stuff consistently, read the Bible every day, but you know what? I don't take enough time to meditate on it, to chew it over, to contemplate, to digest. Um, it's that whole mindfulness thing, Right? Yeah, it's, it's very easy just to do things because it's routine, but you're not really, really thinking about it. You're not really focused on it. And, and that's a danger too, and that's my danger, is I'm not mindful. I'm thinking about all these other things while I've got the Bible open, while I'm doing my devotions. But actually, it's really important that we slow down and we digest it because it's not just head knowledge, which leads to the next one. 
It's easy to then devalue either your intellect or your affections. And some of us are going to be much more head people. Others are going to be much more heart people. But you see, you need both mind and heart if you're going to pay closer attention. And if you feed one but starve the other, it won't stop the drift. You see, mind with no heart just makes you proud and cold. Heart with no mind makes you unstable and volatile. You actually need both. And if you tend towards mind and no heart, paying closer attention is to think about how these things apply to your affections, your emotions, your heart. If you're the other way around, right, you need to feed your mind. You need both. And then last of all, when we try to do it on our own, this is not something that you can do on your own. You've got to pay closer attention to what we've heard as we remind each other, as we teach each other, as we encourage each other. And that's going to be done in the context of relationships, of community, of triplets, of CGs. You see what I mean? You can't do it on your own. You've heard it before. If you take one hot coal out of the furnace, it's going to very quickly grow cold. Coals only stay hot with each other, and that's the same here. Okay, I've said enough. I'm going to get the band up. Um, I'm going to pray. Um, but while we do that, I might just leave this up for a moment. We don't have time for, um, for uh, uh, response time in any kind of um, lengthy kind of way. But you might want to, as I'm getting ready to pray and as the band gets ready to lead us, you might just want to think about out of these five things, and maybe you want to add more, <laughs> any one of them particularly speak to you? Anything the Lord Jesus is saying to you through His Holy Spirit? Any ways in which this is highlighted some way that you need to pay closer attention, not neglect, not, not ignore? And you might want to just quietly ask God to help you this week. Do something about that. Yeah? What might that look like? And encourage each other with it. Find someone after church, someone sitting next to you, some to say, hey, this is what I was challenged with. What were you challenged with? All right, talk about it because we need each other. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, for the great salvation that you, who is truly above and greater than the angels, you have brought we're sorry for the times where we've just neglected that, glossed over it, the, the times where we've drifted. Maybe we're drifting now. We're sorry for that. We repent of it. And we pray that right now you might help us to pay the most careful attention. And if there are people here who really aren't sure where they stand with you, just still investigating, still finding out, we just pray that they might come to understand and accept this great salvation and what that next step might be do business with you, maybe come along to Alpha, maybe find out more, have a conversation, ask questions, whatever it is. Lord, we pray that we would live every day in light of this great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.